The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Ever wondered how a book gets made into a movie? Or how to master the art of cooking? Either way, we've got you covered with the Two Guys from Hollywood podcast. I'm Alan Nevins, a literary agent and talent manager. And I'm Joey Santos, a columnist and celebrity chef. On our podcast, we're going to be serving you a fresh perspective of the entertainment industry alongside our favorite celebrity guests. As we like to say, we don't dish, we serve. Listen and follow Two Guys from Hollywood on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll talk at you soon. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the TakeCast. My name is Davis Maddock. You guys can find me on Twitter at Davis Maddock. In this episode of the show, I'm joined by one of my my longtime favorites, Ethan Sherwood-Strauss. Uh, you can find all of his writing on The Athletic, but he also just wrote a book entitled The Victory Machine about the Warriors dynasty, but more specifically the end of the Warriors dynasty as Kevin Durant is recruited to the Warriors, uh, wins championships with the Warriors, leaves the Warriors uh, lurching. We we definitely get into that. Talk about some of the stuff that happens after the book, the D'Angelo Russell trade, the Andrew Wiggins trade, uh, and really, honestly, just uh, anytime you get a chance to listen to Ethan talk uh, is uh, is it's a good excuse. It's a good it's a good way to uh, to spend time. So I think all of you guys are really enjoy this. I had a great time chatting with Ethan. I I hope that comes through to all of you. Um, if you want to support this show, leaving a rating or review on iTunes is very helpful. Uh, subscribing on patreon.com slash takecast for bonus episodes of the show is of course always appreciated. So I really hope that you guys enjoy this episode and let's go ahead and get into it. All right, everyone, welcoming in Ethan Sherwood-Strauss, author of The Victory Machine to the show. Uh, ben, been a, a fan of yours for a long time, Ethan, is insofar as much as you can be a fan of uh, of someone whose job is to cover a team that you don't even root for <laughs> all that much. But uh, thank you very much for joining the show, buddy. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for the nice words. So I think that this is the question that while I was reading the book, really came to the forefront because all of us, we just watched The Last Dance and we just heard, you know, we heard Michael Jordan throw punches at literally everyone. You know, he's still making fun of Scotty Burrell 20 years later. He he still is airing out his grievances with Isaiah Thomas 20 years later. And and so I, I think the, the question that most that I was thinking of reading the book is how different is this really from Durant listening to the Warriors Hustle podcast 40 minutes in <laughs> and finding, you know, very anonymous NBA bloggers and finding reasons to get mad at these guys. Like it, it really feels like, uh, you know, the apple falling from the same tree to me. I agree with that. And I think it might be the tragedy of knowing too much that instead of making what might otherwise be considered a personality defect, um, uh, evidence of heroism, as we did with Jordan, we almost know way too much about modern celebrities and we see their vulnerabilities and suddenly they don't come off to us as resilient 
or tough or charming. Um, instead, it's something other. It's something else. And for whatever reason, we can look at Michael Jordan and we can look at his excesses and pettiness and lack of perspective and tell a story of that's why he's great. He he was cheating at cards against the mom of his teammate. That's that's not evidence of being a good sport or a good person, but we've turned it into an adorable tale of how much he wants to win. With Kevin Durant, that's not part of the story. None of this, this stuff that we're talking about um, that comes up when his sensitivity is discussed is part of the tale of why he's achieved so much, even though I think it's part of the story. I think he wants validation, desperately wants validation. That's part of what is propelling him towards greatness. So I certainly think that's true. I think that probably a difference between Michael Jordan, at least the way Michael Jordan wants us to perceive him and the way that Michael Jordan's peers perceived him is that I think Jordan was maybe more a little bit driven by individual accomplishments. Like I, I think, you know, Jordan really did like being, you know, the the guy to win the all-star game MVP, MVP, defensive player of the year, all that stuff in the same year. Like, I think those individual accomplishments maybe fulfilled him a little bit more than individual accomplishments fulfilled Durant. You know, like making first team All-NBA, you know, being captain of the all-star team. Like, Durant accomplished all those things. Durant was able to, you know, feel the, the adulation of his peers in those regards. But without the championship, I think that, um, like it, it seemed like those individual accomplishments meant very little to Durant for whatever reason. Yeah, they, they went they went right through them. Though you wonder how happy Michael Jordan is in the aftermath. Not not happy would be my vote. Not happy. Yeah. So yeah, he's not happy, but we're happy with him. Um, mm-hmm. He sold us a narrative we liked, and I think part of the story is social media and what it does to the modern celebrity psyche. But I also think part of the story might have to do with Jordan's deference to the fan. There's been so much analysis and conversation of Jordan not taking a stand against Jesse Helms in the North Carolina Senate Mm -hmm. election. And I think a lot of the conversation is warranted. And I, I do wonder, though, if people are missing something from it, which is that it's illustrative of something else that people do like and they do take less issue with, which is a deference to fans and a worry about pissing fans off. You could call it cowardly. You could call it corporate saying that Republicans buy sneakers too. I certainly understand that perspective, but I I would also tie it back from this overall Jordan perspective of being intensely concerned with his image and how the public received him and of being a guy everybody likes, which I don't think you're seeing from the modern NBA superstar. It seems to be almost an overcorrection in the other direction where there is a lot of can I curse on this podcast? I, I don't, I oh, don't yeah. know the rules. Okay. Oh yeah. There's Go a, for it, there, buddy. There, there's a lot of fuck you. This is me. Mm-hmm. I'm an individual. Fuck you. Um, I, it, there's a lot of that. Like there's a lot of that going on. There's a lot of, I do so many great things. I want to use my platform Um, I'm thinking of myself as a business, as Anthony Davis said on the shop, saying that he had been led in this way by LeBron. And I'm not saying that they're wrong to think this way. I'm not making a moral judgment. I'm just assessing that it pisses fans off. 
That's all I'm saying. I'm just seeing that when fans detect that you have absolutely no deference to them, there's a kind of sports writer who's quite titillated by that sort of iconoclast and enjoys it. But the normie fan often does not. And so that's that I think is another difference where even though it's all the same and for whether it's Jordan, whether it's Durant, it's all about you. It's all about the ego. If you're at least giving some deference and some pretense to the fans and telling them that it's about them and Michael Jordan talking about the great city of Chicago and what the great city of Chicago means to him, even though he never goes back there uh, for any Bulls games because he's mad at the Bulls organization. Fans absorb that, and they like that. If your thing is always about how slighted you are and how you're not getting the proper validation that you deserve, um, they're repelled by that, and that makes sense to me. Yeah, the the modern NBA fan, as modern as they get, they still don't want to believe that the self is greater than the team, right? Yeah. Like, they, they still want to believe in the team entity as you know, the, the consummate goal, that, that team glory should come before individual glory, that it should come before branding. And, you know, the for really the modern NBA player has just sort of, uh, you know, passed that by. Like, I, I don't even, is that even something that guys even give lip service to these days? No. Like, uh, I, they don't even really bother with that anymore, I think, really. I think my book is sort of about that, too, um, that it's become, that when Kyrie Irving... Uh, sneers at the reporter and the reporter might have been in the wrong I don't know but he's saying the fans you write about for the fans I mean how often do these guys even talk about the fans and I don't blame them for disliking the fans the fans of a very conditional love it's not real but we weren't aware of that and there was at least an idea of you want to pretend you want to promote the noble lie right now the noble lie is not being promoted it's every one of these teams is a vessel for me to chase my ambitions um they don't really matter or mean much to me Kawhi leonard's in san antonio one day then he's in toronto the next and then he's back in la which is Adjacent to his hometown, but there's not much of a connection to his teammates as far as we can see. Um, And it's a different world. And that different world, even though it's understandable on the individual level, and again, I don't want to make it seem like I'm blaming the players at all. It's just that the circumstances are such that it's not resonating as much with fans. The NBA has a problem. I didn't make that the thesis of the book, but I think... The more and more I saw after completing the book and the way the season has gone, and we have so much focus on whether it's going to resume that we were kind of setting aside what a disaster it was before all this happened, the NBA has got an issue. I'm not yeah. sure how it solves it, but it's got an issue. It's legitimate. It's not some – I mean, you could see it burbling up, but the precipitous fall of the ratings, I, I would I would believe, indicates that there is a serious branding, hashtag branding, uh, problem for the NBA right now. So from from my perspective, I was an Oklahoma City Thunder fan from when they from when they moved to Seattle. You know, I rooted for the Hornets the year that they played there after the hurricane and then became a full fledged Oklahoma City fan. So, you know, I was there for all of Durant's career and, you know, all of Westbrook's career until this last year and and, you know, Harden and and all those guys. And when Kevin Durant left to go play for the Warriors, I just I kind of can kind of pinpoint that as just when I stopped really caring about team sports at all. And it's not, I mean, Kevin, if you're listening to this and maybe you are, maybe you aren't, I don't know. Uh, I like, I don't, I don't blame Kevin Durant. Like I think his decision makes sense. He is, Kevin was the victim of, 
of rings culture, right? Like Kevin Durant yeah. is an amazing basketball player. He's so good. He does so many things well. There's not really anything he can't do well, as you as you point out in the book. And because of, you know, the shortcomings of his coach, because of the shortcomings of I, I a lot of people, you know, it's very popular to um it's very popular to blame it on Russell Westbrook. I actually think it's sort of more the fact that they obviously they traded James Harden well, and they could never find a good fifth starter. Um, yeah. It's not his fault. And and but ever since that time it's just become it's become a lot harder for me to care about the success of a team, basically. Yeah. There was something to the organic feeling of how a team comes to be of watching them all grow up together. And yes. that series between the Thunder and the Warriors in 2016, yeah. we just don't see series having that juice. And a lot of that is having the familiar cast of characters, seeing them come into their own. They're battling for the same spot. Maybe they aren't friends, but we can delude ourselves into thinking they're friends. Into thinking they are. Yeah. And we don't have that. The NBA has gone a little crazy. It's a little too decadent. And I don't I don't know if we done we've done a good job as media of really assessing the situation and understanding its lack of resonance. And I think part of that is because there is a culture of boosterism within the NBA. I think you have to give some credit to David Stern in his day who did promote this idea that everything's coming up NBA. Everything's coming up NBA. And I would see a lot of my colleagues just not even knowing that the numbers weren't so great or thinking that other numbers were more relevant. And I don't want to seem... I don't know, like I'm presenting myself as the one person who knows or saying they don't know what they're talking about. I just think that we're often absorbed into a covering the games and covering the players and this larger, broader conversation of how the sport is doing can fall by the wayside. I think that is I think that is certainly true. Um, And I, I think tangentially this is related to. A big point in your book that, and I, you know, maybe maybe other people have made this point, but this point is made as a large part of your book very pointedly, which is that these shoe companies are really the primary employers of these players. If if you look at the pro, if you look at it in yeah, a certain the way, top t- the top tier players, the top. Yeah, yeah. So so maybe not for you know maybe not for for Trevor Ariza, right? The Houston yeah. Rockets are his his primary employer, but for Kevin Durant for LeBron James, their relationship with Nike is going to involve way more money, way more trust, and and over a much longer time frame than their relationship for any NBA team, you know, including LeBron in Cleveland, including Kevin Durant in Oklahoma City. Uh, You know, even, I mean, I don't know, you don't really touch on it as much with Steph and Under Armour, how they feel about it, but, you know, I how much of a hand do you think that these teams really have in I mean, obviously, I think the ratings problem is is one thing, but like in in player movement, like do you mm. really like do you personally believe that Golden State had a hand in moving Kevin Durant uh, to Golden State? Or you, you mean did Nike have did it? Nike? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I misspoke there. Yeah, Nike moving Durant either away from Oklahoma City because you know obviously that's a terrible market in terms of you know selling shoes nationwide, but specifically with the competition with Steph Curry for shoe sales. Yeah, well, there's some circumstantial evidence. I mean, you're not going to get a smoking gun in all likelihood, right. and you wouldn't need one. Um, it's a little bit like a Ouija board where you can you can nudge it in the direction you want to nudge it without leaving much evidence that that's what's going that's what's going on. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with the immense leverage they have over even the superstar athletes. To be number one at Nike is unlike anything else. Um, no team can offer that. Uh, so. 
does it have to be formalized? Does it have to be a contract that says if you go to this team, then you're going to be the man? Or does it just have to be insinuated? Does it just have to be a conversation where you're saying, look, if you do this, you are going to be the face. We are going to promote you. You are going to be the biggest story in sports on the best team. We're going to run things. I mean, it wouldn't be so hard to just, to just, to just, you know, sketch out that vision for somebody. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is that it can happen informally. It can happen formally, but you hear things, you hear things, you hear about how maybe a guy isn't going to play his rookie year, um, because he had an injury early on and he's just going to take the entire year off because there are incentives in his shoe contract. And if he's not making, all rookie or if he's not making rookie of the year then he's going to get less money and suddenly that's a consideration as to when he begins the season and that's not going to be reported on we're not going to know about it we're not going to know about it because in the case of these contracts they're not public they're not there's a press release and they say x amount of million dollars but we don't know we don't know the minutia of it like we do with an nba contract so in that you can have a lot of you can have a lot of influence that's that's not known, that's not seen. And I guess to answer your question, I do think it has an influence. One of the reasons is with Kevin, there's a he's kind of the king of doth protest too much. And when yeah. he was just asserting with everything, that, right? And when he's when, when he's just going, Nike had nothing to do with my decision. They didn't even know about it. They found out when everybody else did. Well, a, I know that's not true. I know Nike knew before the announcement. You know, I have enough sources within Nike to know that. Um, that's where I was hearing about it first. So that part's not true. And it just makes you wonder, is the next part not true, but you can't prove it. And if you can't prove it, you can't say it with total confidence. I will say that, you know, Lynn Merritt, big time mover at Nike. Um, you know, uh, he, he was in the front row with the other Nike guys at, the announcement of Kevin Durant joining the Warriors, the introductory press conference, make of that whatever you will. Yeah, I, I I have some very I have some very strong memories attached to a uh, attached to that press conference. Well, I mean, it really was as like as a as someone who really loved Kevin Durant. Like Kevin Durant was my favorite player. I had the jerseys even even when his shoes were kind of ugly, right? Like I would I would mm-hmm. buy them because I loved Kevin Durant. So he definitely uh, he he lost he lost me buying the shoes, which um, sort of leads me to my next question, which is like, do you think Kevin Durant was always this guy? Do you think that Kevin Durant was like this moody guy as a 22-year-old when the Thunder were like, you know, unexpectedly beating the Lakers? Do you, do you get the sense from people that you talk to for the book in Oklahoma City that they were worried about Kevin Durant's attitude in 2012? Or was this a result of you know, not winning, you know, losing to LeBron in the finals, losing to the Warriors in the conference finals. Like, when do we think that this version of Kevin Durant emerged? I think it was a progression. I think there was an initial innocence um, and happiness with the situation. And he was, you remember, because you followed the Thunder, he was the backpack guy with the Bible verses. Oh, yeah. He was that guy. And there is something to the NBA where, a lot of guys start that way. There is a lot of bright-eyed, bushy-tailedness, and then they develop a bit of an edge. Even Steph has developed a bit of an edge. Uh, and so I think it was a progression, and 
it seemed like even if there were issues and even if nobody changes that much, right? People might change by 20%. So I don't think he was a totally different guy with OKC, but it does seem as though the melancholy ramped up uh, with the Warriors and things went from, mm, you know, maybe a little mixed, maybe a little up and down uh, to worse. And so I do think it was a progression. I don't think he transformed completely, but I think aspects of his personality were more magnified um, and amplified with the Warriors. Yeah. And I mean, I do, I tend to agree with, uh, you know, Adam Silver's assessment that for these guys who live this very specific lifestyle, which is like, you know, already these guys are really isolated from normal people. So like, even if they weren't famous basketball players, it would be hard for, you know, these seven foot tall guys to go out and just go like enjoy a night out on town. Right. So like that's kind of isolating in the sense that they feel different from most people. And then they're more isolated because they, because they travel all the time. Right. So they're, they're, they're always either away from their family, away from their friends, and they get really insulated in these entourage groups. And then this would have been true in the eighties and nineties, right? This would have been true in Michael Jordan's time, but it would have been a little bit easier for them, you know, like literally like to go out and go gamble. Like Michael Jordan, one of the famous, one of the most famous people in the world could still go to Atlantic city or go golf or whatever. That'd be much harder for those guys to do now. They weren't they you, weren't being spied on by little devices all over the place that every citizen yes. had on their person. Uh, they didn't have that. You know, now everybody's a paparazzi. Back then you worried about a few paparazzis. Now it's now it's the world. Now literally everyone is. And then on top of that, you add on the whole other layer of these guys can isolate themselves even further and literally like not be paying attention to the people that they're around. And just be yeah. on their phones and just be on Instagram, uh, be on Twitter, like be talking. Like, I'm sure my guess would be that a lot of these guys who are not married and not in relationships spend most of their time meeting girls on apps. Like, I don't I don't think they're going out to go pick up girls like at that, the bar. Right. Like they're, they're yeah, meeting them on their it's, phones. It's way more efficient. Uh, Tom Habistro made the argument that it was making players healthier because they weren't going to the nightclub. Now they could do it frictionless. Uh, as it were. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a big part. And there's a certain code to it where when players will tweet out or put on Instagram wheels down in a particular city, that's a, that's a signal. That's a bat signal, um, for getting, you know, for getting those messages. You're, you're telling people you're in town and yeah, that's become a big part of it. It's not meeting women is no longer a social activity. Strange as that might be to say. Yeah. So I think I think my supposition would be that Kevin Durant might be like a really extreme case of like, you know, he's been he's been caught using the burners. You know, people know that he argues, um, you know, he argues with with his trolls in the mentions. And there is this hilarious segment of the book where Kerr imagines literally bringing these trolls into the Warriors practice facility and being yeah. like, uh, yo, this is, uh, this is Joe from Manhattan beach. And, uh, he said, you suck and that LeBron is better. And then, you know, of course the guy sees Kevin Durant face to face and says, Oh my gosh, that was so stupid. I'm sorry. Yeah. I said that. Can I get an autograph? Which is hilarious. But I, I think more what I took away from that, that discussion in your book is like, I think a lot of these guys probably feel this way. I think a lot of these guys yeah. are probably, sad and and isolated i i think some people in talking about the book maybe they do it based on an excerpt they 
think it's something that it isn't, and they think it's, I don't know, some sort of vendetta against Kevin Durant. I, I talk about Kevin Durant because I see him as the extreme example of a trend you're seeing overall, that he's the most pronounced and well-known version of this particular ennui that we are seeing sweeping across the NBA star set of unhappiness, of dissatisfaction with your situation, of not feeling fulfilled, of feeling isolated. These are things that you can look around the league, and I suppose Kyrie Irving is another major example of it, but it seems to be more broadly felt, and he just happens to be the example we're most aware of and the most paradoxical example because he got everything theoretically you'd be trying to get. He got a season in which he won the championship going 16-1 and and won finals MVP and was miserable. <laughs> so, I mean, that's that's that that that's uh, that, that should tell you something. That should tell you something about where the league is and how I think whatever Kevin's issues are, I do think some of this is circumstantial. I do think some of this is environmental and not just whatever he's going through. I, I also think the other point is that Durant, for you could say this is a good thing about him, you could say this is a bad thing about him. I would actually err on the side of saying it's a good thing. But like I, I think he's a pretty honest guy. Like I, I think maybe something that would be different between him and... like Do, do we really think Kevin Durant is the only NBA player with burners? right that that gets on and like read stuff about him like zero percent but he like he got caught and he's like yep that's me i like to talk about basketball i like to argue with these people like i don't know i mean maybe this is just because again like i Mm, i I push back on that i i i push push back back on that i i do think it's become a bit of a hipster take that this is good and healthy (laughs) no i'm not i don't want to say it's good and healthy you're saying you respect the honesty about it you respect the honesty about it and that he's saying here i am i do this what of it kevin durant should not be doing this this is not this is not um an enlightened way for him to be living like he should be doing almost anything else with his time but at the very least i do respect that he is like not yeah not there's, lying something, about it. There, there's something nice about that and i think i remember chris haynes asked him why he was so sensitive in the locker room when i was in there and he said yeah that's right i am sensitive and what of it and you just don't hear a lot of athletes talking that way and so that part is refreshing but it does seem like if you do run into the territory of what he doesn't want revealed then i'm not saying that it's Machiavellian dishonesty, but you see the sort of blow up like the the press conference where <laughs> there's just a whole lot of there's a whole lot of uh, uh, sound and fury signifying nothing uh, when you bump up against an aspect that he doesn't necessarily want revealed. But yeah, I, I, I'm with you though. It doesn't come off as dishonest as so much as it comes off as weird. I, I don't even uh, it's just a, weird. A, such a doth protest too much that you'd have to be incredibly naive not to see through it well i think i mean i so i guess many of us imagine what it would be like if we were seven feet tall one and won the mvp won multiple championships were making more money than we could spend if we tried to spend millions of dollars every single day and we're just like we we can't imagine um being mad at a beat reporter right (laughs) like it just it just it feels it feels like a foreign experience now again, you know Kevin Durant's experience is unique to him, but it does it certainly does feel like um like your your 15 minutes of uh of infamy I guess was like this really fascinating moment but was like really uh undeserved cuz you didn't really do anything other than do your job. Well, 
Yeah, be that as it may, and I guess it comes with the territory. Um, I can understand getting mad at a at a writer. Players often get mad at writers, but they don't do typically is to make a public spectacle of it. You know, I I've had a few. Yeah, words. they don't admit that they read. They said someone sent yeah. it to me. That's the yeah, that's the thing. Like somebody sent it to me. That's the thing that guys tell you. Somebody sent it to me. I mean, I would never, I would never read you under my. I would own never, voice. I would never pay for the athletic and read your yeah, articles. Yeah, I would never, I would never subscribe. Um, yeah, what's unusual is making the whole, the whole thing of it, um, in that way. And it is funny looking back. I mean, I try not to get into the. I, I, I try to avoid some of because I know fans don't care. I know readers don't care. They don't care however I feel, if I feel completely exonerated um, by whatever happened. But it is funny to look back on it and look back at this. The, the, the mentality of certain fans is interesting. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm fighting against myself right now not to look down on fans. I don't want to do it because... You know, I'm a fan in many ways. I'm a fan of teams outside of basketball. I, I get it. I'm not above them. But when I see this thing happening where they kind of rally around Kevin at that time, Warriors fans are defending him and the evil media for stirring things up. And I just wanted to tap them collectively on the shoulder and go, do you guys notice how he never makes any indication that he wants to come back? Like at any point, like that that's never happening, that he's never, ever even yeah. saying this is a good not, situation. Not one time. Or, or I like my teammates. Or uh, it, it, like, there's no, or I'll even I'll even look into it, or I'll even take that meeting. Yeah, you, you guys know, like you, you notice this, yes? Or is it just, or is it just shoot the messenger day? I mean, it's funny to me that they're almost backing a guy for not supporting them, for not backing the team they want. That's the guy they're trying to support. They're like, yeah, that's right. He doesn't have to say shit about how he wants to come back to the team I love. So and then he leaves, and then they get mad at him. It's just fascinating to watch it. Well, the, so, I mean, the fan the fan mentality is just like it's sort of, it's sort of like a siege mentality, right? So like yeah. whatever whatever we're mad about at this moment, that's who we're most mad at. So instead of instead of being mad at Durant for wanting to leave, they're they're mad at you or the media as a whole, which people like to just make the, the media, media one one character. Uh, yeah. You know, they, they the media is the one pushing Durant away. You know, it's not it's not uh, the fact that uh, he and Kerr don't get along. And, and that, in a way, you know, they're not totally wrong. You know, like if the media, as the collective Borg we are, um, rewarded winning in the way we did in the past. I do think it yeah. was a little more top down that way. Where if you won, we said you're a winner. And we overread what that meant. We said it meant you you had great character. Um, and Kirby Puckett's a great guy. And it turns out he's, he's not such a great guy. Um, we, we, we would do that. And we wouldn't necessarily care about all that went into it. Now we pick it apart. Now we go, yeah, but the team you were on was really good. And this other guy did well. And look how many win shares this other guy collected. And, you know, I don't even know if the MVP needs to go to a team that won over 50 games. And so it's become this conversation where you can't even necessarily completely win by winning. And then it gets into this first take culture that is now so important to the main channels that show the game. You know, when NBC was doing it, it was just about making the game as great as possible and seem as important as possible. Now with ESPN, ABC, the game has to be sold off afterwards into discussion into sports talk that is stimulating. And that means one of the guys at the table is going to raise his hand and say that you didn't actually do that great or deserve the status, and here's why. So I guess we have as a collective 
we've made it harder for them to achieve a certain kind of validating success, which makes that's, them want to leave. That's true. Which makes them, yeah. which makes them want to leave, which makes them want to leave the team they're at. Because if we're saying, you know, Kevin needs to win or we're not going to consider him an all-time great, and then he joins the Warriors and he wins, and we go, yeah, but the circumstances were kind of bullshit, so then he leaves that team, we are then playing a role in why he's leaving since he does seem to care about the external uh, conversation. Well, and if there had been a slew of Kevin Durant kicked LeBron James's ass, is it time to start talking about Kevin Durant as the best player? Let, let's compare LeBron and Kevin Durant from a statistical perspective and show why Durant is better. Had there been a flux of that stuff from the media, things are probably a little different. He probably yeah. feels differently. Yeah, I think... You know, I don't think he was ever going to be made completely fulfilled or happy by the external conversation, but the one that happened accelerated the process, I believe. I do think if there was more, he is now the greatest, uh, we consider him number one, LeBron's the past. Uh, if he had really gotten the love he was seeking, if he had gotten that love, then it would have been a more tenable situation. But that just wasn't going to happen for a variety of reasons, one of which is that fans are right in a way to say you joined a 73-win team. It doesn't mean as much. That's not crazy. It's not crazy at all. That makes a lot of sense that they would react that way. Um, and additionally, if they can sense that you really want that validation and you want the validation, but it's coming without the aforementioned deference, it's coming without trying to appeal to them in any way. It's just this raw need for praise. They're going to be repelled by that. They like security. They like the idea of a guy who seems normal and cool, and they're going to give the praise and validation to the guy who doesn't need it over the guy who so obviously does. That's just human nature. So by your estimation, one, at what point did Durant decide, all right, I'm out of here. I don't want to do this anymore. And is there anything that his teammates, that Bob Myers, that Joe Lacob, that Steve Kerr could have done to alter that course? I think it happened. Um, I mean, the seeds were the, the seeds were sown, or whatever the phrase is, after the first championship not being especially fulfilling. But I think after that second championship, going into that season, he was gone. And I don't think anything was throwing that off course. I don't think it was possible. I think they tried. Um, you know, some people think that Draymond chased him out of town. I don't think that's true at all. Uh, he cares more about the conversation outside the locker room than the conversation inside the locker room, by all indications. He's accused me of psychoanalyzing him. I don't know. Like, I've seen enough. I've heard enough that I think that's the case. And as long as that conversation wasn't changing... And for a brief moment, I'll tell you one thing. I, I, I do wonder, you know, the circumstances that could have changed it were the media conversation, I believe. And that sounds absurd, but it's completely true, I think. <laughs> so would you tell me, could circumstances have been different? Could the team, could Joe, could Bob? Yeah, yeah could if Steve? Joe Lacob pays off all of it, pays yeah. off uh, ESPN and, and CBS and everything yeah. to just to and, run and, only and, only puff pieces about Kevin Durant and yeah. his abilities. And, and Stephen A. And you know maybe in that in that circumstance, but God, that is the other funny thing with Kevin, and this goes back to the lack of deference and his belief, almost innocently, that if he just plays great and wins, that he will be rewarded. There is this funny thing of. Okay, so you care about the media conversation about you, but
but you're always going after these guys and insulting them. Um, you know, forget about me. Like, I'm just like a writer, but these TV people and mm-hmm. beyond what you even know about, he just jumps in the DMs of tons of people, insults them, says all this stuff. And then there's this shock that you win the championship and you turn on the TV the next day. And they're not just hailing you and throwing rose petals at your feet. You know, it's like, well, what did you think? (laughs) If you cared about it going a certain way, then, you know, typically you try to you try to get it going that way. Uh, (laughs) But he doesn't maybe to his credit, he doesn't play that particular PR game. But to your question, could Joe have played it? I don't know. I think it was too far gone at that point. I don't think that there's any scenario where you can start bribing uh, the guys at first take and make everybody sound like Jay Williams because the other thing that happens is, you know, fans aren't even if we were mocking a little bit how fans for a local team can rally around the team, rally around the aggrieved superstar when he goes at media. Um, but fans on on just by and large aren't stupid. Like they can they can kind of tell they can understand the organic conversation versus the inauthentic conversation. And I think if you even if you paid everybody off, there'd be enough of fan rebellion that that would rankle. I just think it was I I don't think anything could have happened. I think it was going the direction it was going. Which is interesting because I guess from the outside, you would think you can't have things that predetermined. Like there can't be that. Like I, I mean, one thing is where are the really great destinations, right? Uh, because you, you don't want to, you don't want to make the same mistake of joining a situation where people view you as stacking the deck overtly, yeah. you know? Uh, so like, let's say, let's say he's like, you know what? I just, I want to go play with LeBron. I want to go, I want to go play with LeBron. I want to do this. I want to go make my money in LA. Maybe I want to be in Space Jam too. And so that that doesn't work, right? Because then then just the same thing happens where people are like, oh, well, Kevin, you know, you're always a front runner. But at the same yeah. time, he doesn't want to go to a team that sucks. He doesn't he doesn't want to go and waste more years of his prime, though. I mean, the Achilles injury probably did change that calculus a little bit where uh, he probably just wanted to make sure that he was financially going to be taken care of or whatever. But I, I think the human element from I mean, my the, side would the be Achilles like, shows you that this was all going one way because yeah. he, he was praised and celebrated for doing it. And then so much more money is guaranteed by signing with the warriors again. Um, but no, he's, he's still out of there. He, he was gone. He was done. It was, it was going that direction. Yeah. I mean, oddly enough, I think if, if you, you know, you got, you got Lake Balone, he'd be like, you know, what, what way, do you think you can get Durant to sign a five-year contract and be like, oh, well, he gets so hurt he doesn't know if he can play in 2020? And even then, yeah. it still it didn't matter, which nope. is very interesting. Yeah, yeah, it did not it did not matter. The situation was done. The story had run out. Everybody was tired of it. Um, and it's funny because you would think a winning situation, you know, they lose in the finals, but it's a situation where the players are pretty blameless. Um, you would think that it would be sustaining, but it's not. And maybe it was always thus. You don't see the Bulls as too happy when they're at the height of winning. Um, but it seems right now, right now, there's a particular ennui to the NBA. Yeah, I mean, I will say, and the the last dance was obviously edited in a very, very specific way, but... Well, Scotty I mean, Scotty Burrell wasn't a more important Chicago Bull than Ron Harper. Is is that right. what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, I mean it was it was edited in a very specific way, but like the those guys did feel to me more 
authentically joined together than, you know, Kyrie and LeBron ever did, I guess, to me, yeah. basically is what I'm saying. Yeah, like th- they seemed more like a, a capital T team, I guess. But again, you know, it's hard to say, is that actually true or is that just, you know, the Michael Jordan uh, production company filmmaking? Well, he didn't even seem to join to them in his edit of things. Um, so I think that's just maybe that's always been the case, but there was more of a team bond. Um, and Adam Silver was talking about that, where they're on the bus together. They have to deal with each other in a certain way uh, when they're not listening to Kenny Lattimore. Um, they, you know, it's uh, it seemed like there was more of a sense of a team and there was less hopping around. And it's a tricky thing because these guys have earned it. They're very valuable to these franchises. I would like the ability to go to whatever organization would have my services that I would want to go to. Um, but at the same time, it's not what works. It's not what works for the league. I think we're seeing enough. We're seeing enough to know there was this intense focus in the media and sometimes in media you conflate what's good for you with what's good for the sport. And all this free agency chatter was good for us. We got a lot of page views. A lot of people wanted to read about it. It wasn't necessarily 12 month season, right? 12 yes, month season. 12 month season. 12 month season. I was like, oh, they, they, the NBA, they're geniuses. They've created the, you know, we, we've done a lot of praising the NBA for creating things that don't make them any money. Like, ah, oh, congratulations. <laughs> you, you know, you've, you've made your season the 12 month 24 hours a day season. I don't know how you convert any of that into money um, at all. Like it doesn't turn into a ticket, but yeah, great. That's wonderful. And you know, it, it doesn't seem like that, that thing that's good for us as media that gets people to click because they want to know what happens next for their particular team is growing the pie beyond the hardcore fans that like to click on that. It's not, it's not getting new customers. It's scratching a particular itch that a particular a tranche of customers have and that seems to be what we've learned over the past few years i mean some people would disagree some people might push back um but i don't see as many people evincing this any longer i think people are starting to they're starting to see that this is not this isn't working yeah i mean so what they're what they're gaining in um nate duncan's you know they are and I, I like Nate, and I like his show, but he's a very specific type of, of NBA analyst and fan. What they're, what they're gaining in terms of, like, getting people who are legitimately dedicating their lives to, to following and, and being fans of the league, they are, they are losing in the guy who, you know, might have watched um, the second round of the playoffs and, before, and, and now and, is and just Nate, not going to. And Nate just needs a different scale to live quite well than the NBA needs for everybody to live well. You know, yes. like the, in theory, the NBA has millions, if not tens of millions of fans. I mean, I, I live a few uh, I live a couple miles from Nate. His house is very nice. But if he had millions of fans, I think it would be it'd be nicer. A, it would be a palatial it would be a palatial estate. And so I, I but that's that's what the NBA needs. That's that's they need something that's that big. And uh, yeah, I think I've made the point. I'm, I'm struggling to find the right language for it, but yeah, like Nate, Nate needs a level, and the NBA needs like a billion. <laughs> well, so, yeah, I I think the issue is this is actually very similar to the baseball problem, um, in a in a different way, but in terms of total numbers, it's very similar. Baseball is enduringly popular as a local sport. Uh, the local yeah. TV contracts are great. 
uh, people who live in Oakland, for example, you know, like they're going to go to the A's games. I live in St. Louis. People like the Cardinals are huge here. It is a it is a monstrously bad national product. Like Mike Trout yeah. can pretty much walk down the street wherever he goes, and he's like the best player in the sport Baseball in in fifty so, years. Baseball is so weird with that. I don't it's know what that weird. is. I because I love watching Oakland A's games. I love having yeah. it on the background. I know who all the players are. I don't care about any other team. Any other team at all. I, I don't know what that is. Like it's a very strange baseball specific issue. I don't I mean sometimes I'll watch if it's the Yankees versus whoever. I mean if it was Yankees Angels, I would, you know, maybe tune in, but I I don't I just don't care, and I have no idea what it is about the sport and how it's played that makes it so localized. But yeah, baseball's got a whole other set of issues. I think the difference is that baseball media has always been aware of their issues, and basketball media hasn't. Baseball media knew that they had this demographic issue where their fans were older, so they're always talking about it as an existential threat, whereas the NBA, which was suffering similar declines over the past two decades— has this kind of demographic triumphalist story that they tell themselves that the other sports fans are old and dying out and our fans are young and represent the diversity of America going forward. And so we're just going to get all these fans. And when you rely on that, when you rely on demographics to be the reason why you're going to succeed in the future, you might not be working hard enough to actually convert those new fans and actually spread your game's message. I think that might be what happened with the NBA. Um, And there is like this also this very obvious thing where like one young people will be into something and not spend money on it. Right. Like they'll, they'll make it part of their identity, but like not spend a ton of money on it. So like they'll, they'll watch highlights on Twitter. Right. And and not buy tickets or, or they'll buy jerseys on eBay, but not from, you know, the official uh, NBA store. And then also just like money amongst young people. And this is true you know, long-term, it, it, this isn't just, you know, in the middle of a global pandemic where people are losing their jobs, but like young people have less money than yes. older people. And, uh, you know, that, that when you're pretty much banking on an, an entire demographic of 18 to 35 year olds, like that population in general is just going to spend less money. Yeah. I mean, my, my millennial cohort is a broke co- cohort and, uh, has been doubly, uh, gutted, by the recession coming out of college and now this once people are starting to get back on their feet and become young professionals um so yeah there aren't there isn't as much money and the highlights thing is interesting because i was thinking about somebody was talking about gretzky and having amazing stats and so i enjoyed I, i started enjoying some youtube videos of wayne gretzky doesn't make me a hockey fan. <laughs> like it doesn't mean did, that I'm going to. Didn't make them any money. That did not make. That did not make them any money. Didn't, didn't make them any money. You know, and I, I mean, it's good that they have it for archival knowledge and for people to be able to enjoy that. But it's it's not obvious that just because people watch highlights or see something go down on Twitter that it's going to make them someone who's going to turn on a TV and sit there for two hours. It doesn't always. It doesn't always happen. It didn't happen or, with or me buy the center ice package or whatever. Yes, yeah. It didn't. It didn't happen with me and Hog. I said, "Whoa, this guy's doing really cool stuff." I admired it. I enjoyed it. I didn't. I didn't buy a shark season ticket package. That didn't happen. So um, they need to make the game the main event. What's difficult is that the main company broadcasting the NBA, and I work there, and a lot of talented people there, 
that's not what they do. They make the discussion of the game the main event. And so <laughs> I don't know how they make this thing the thing. They should. I want to be clear because I sound a bit like a doomsayer. The reason I focus and harp on so much of this stuff is because I think that the NBA product is incredible. I think basketball is the most it's beautiful great. sport. And I'm frustrated because I look at this and I go, this should be just conquering the country. This should be the biggest thing we have going. And since we don't have it happening under the circumstances it needs to happen, it's actually leaking interest and becoming less of a big deal versus the everybody gather around the TV set feeling we had when watching the Jordan documentary back when the NBA was at its most resonant within the country. Yeah, and I mean, there are... There are many reasons for that. You know, people people get mad at uh, LeBron for for player movement. People are are mad at Durant. You know, there there are, there are many you know socio cultural reasons for this. And I you know yeah. I don't I don't have all the answers for them or anyway. So I so, do I want to get I. in. Go ahead. No, I said nor do I. I mean, yeah. there's like I think it's a general gestalt. I mean, that's what's tough though with brands. It's. It's what do you th- what do people think about when we bring you up? It's valuable. Steve Jobs gave extensive speeches on how the best brands conjure a certain image of what they are. And Apple, I guess, had this kind of rebellious, uh, you know, rebellious contrarian mm-hmm. image. And the NBA's image right now, when people think about it, I, I don't know if it's what they want it to be right now. Well, also, it's probably very age dependent, right? Like people who are 40 probably think of like Jordan and then like oh you know LeBron sucks I don't I don't uh, like watching I don't like watching these new guys who are all friends right that's a very common it's a very common thing you'll hear people complain about is is these guys all like each other and they they hug each other after the game and that's not how competition is supposed to be yeah I think there's some of that I don't think the China thing helped um no. I, I think that's that's not a good that's not a good thing to put out there um, yeah. you know, you seem to have a groveling fealty to the United States main adversary, although that's a little complicated. It's adversary plus main trading partner outside of North America. So that's all very convoluted. But, um, I think that it's all tarnishing the idea that these games are important and the players playing them deeply care about the results and their connections to their cities, which seems to be fairly essential. Sports is a funny business because it is a business, but people need to think it's more than a business for it to remain a business. That's true. Okay. I want to get back. I want to get back in the weeds a little bit with the Warriors. Uh, Okay. First, first in the weeds question for the Warriors, given what you know about Curry, Iguodala, Draymond, those guys, if they could, if they could redo the recruitment for Kevin Durant, they win. They win two titles. They really, you know, they they should have won. They should have won the the um, they should have won the title the year that the the Cavs won. They came from three one. You know, just so many mystical things had to happen. Do you think that they would avoid it altogether, given how miserably they felt during the second year and and how it ended with the loss to the Raptors, the ACL tear for Clay? Or do you think a title is a title? They didn't, they, they, Kevin Durant made it quote unquote easy for them. Like, do you think they do it again? I think, I think, um, Clay and Steph both have the perspective that the titles are going to echo across time and it's good to prioritize that. And maybe there are sacrifices, uh, in the meantime that aren't fun, but it will all be worth it. Maybe they'll be right about that. 
um, you know, maybe that's how it will go. But I don't think that there is regret there. I think there's regret over not winning some games they wanted to win. I think there's always going to be regret about not winning 2016. But I don't think there is regret. And a lot of things are like this where we don't enjoy it in the moment. But when we look back on it, we don't feel whatever the pain uh, at the time was. And we like what we got out of it. And I think it would be for the main players. I think it would be something like that for them. I think that I think that sounds about right. It, I guess if I had to guess from the outside, I would guess that the more the more cerebral elements of the the Warriors roster would say a title is a title. They're they, they're not taking it away from me. And uh, you know, someone who's maybe a little bit more bellicose, like Draymond, would say, "Man, I'm so mad. I'm so mad we mm. let that guy in on on what we <laughs> had because he ruined it." That that would just be my guess from. What I what my personal feelings about what Draymond is like, which I have, of course, no idea. Yeah, I, I've I haven't heard anybody express regret to me. You know, I can only go based on that. And maybe they feel it, maybe they sense it, but I haven't heard anybody say to me, I, "We regret doing it." It's more, it's time for this to end. <laughs> yeah, I mean the the I guess the a very clear trend in like the after the so after chapter five is just that everyone was sick of everyone at that point that this final season where they're playing the the 2019 season or the the 2018-19 season which which ends in them losing to the Raptors it's it just it seems like basically no one was having fun that it just it wasn't fun to play the playoffs were kind of supposed to be better it doesn't get any better you know Durant gets banged up playing against the Rockets sucks the only little air bubble of fun really came when KD went down, which they yeah. won't say openly, but it was obvious. Just the se- they celebrated that that uh, that series win over the Rockets like it was a championship. I mean, that was a crazy outpouring of emotion, and they enjoyed the series against the Blazers as well. I mean, because finally you're doubted, finally you can overcome something, um, and so they enjoyed that. But I, I think. Andre had the best quote about it, and it's not in the book, but he was asked about the book and whether it was true that winning doesn't bring happiness, and he said, it doesn't, but you miss it. And so I think there's that as well, where they weren't happy at the end, but God damn it, it's a lot better than perhaps last season. That's not a lot of fun to go through either. Yeah, I, I would imagine so. So going on going on past the time frame of the book, we, we, are, now, we are now in a, a post- uh, a post Kevin Durant world and a post D'Angelo Russell world. So D'Angelo Russell gets, you know, a page or two towards the second half of the book when they talk about the trade with the Nets. And now that spot on the roster is occupied by Andrew Wiggins, who sort of is like his ceiling that people would imagine him for was someone like Kevin Durant. In actuality, he's, he's much more like a Harrison Barnes figure on yep. this team. And I'm, I'm sort of wondering, you know, what is what is the Joey Lightyear's plan for Andrew Wiggins? Does he do they do they pay him his money and hope that he's there to play defense and fit along next to a hopefully healthy Steph Curry and Klay Thompson, or do they actually do you is, do you think that they view they're they're so high on what they can do with players that they can actually go back in to that ceiling for Andrew Wiggins and turn him into you know what what we projected on him since he was eighteen years old. Yeah, well, Joey Lightyears is pretty excited about the the Wiggins acquisition. Um, I think the idea is that he will just be made better by the situation, which 
not too crazy. I mean, you want to bet on track record. If you're going to bet probability-wise, you, you would bet on players being who they've been for years. But there, there still exists the possibility that it's circumstantial and that if you flank him with Steph and with Clay, suddenly he is unleashed and he looks a lot better. Personally, I think the best thing for them would be for him to look a lot better and then recoup a ton of value in a trade because because now you're thinking, okay, so his efficiency is better and he's better because he's surrounded by Steph and Clay. That doesn't necessarily mean that he became a better player, and it could also be that somebody else could do it better for a lot cheaper plus some other pieces. Yeah, so, that, that Alfonso McKinney could make the veterans minimum and yeah. uh, give you give you similar on-court performance to what Max Contract Wiggins is doing. Exactly, exactly. And so... Um, you know, maybe the hope is uh, he plays so well or looks so good that um, a trade for a bigger star becomes more palatable. And, I mean, the ultimate dream would have to be honest, of course, um, obviously. And how that would get done, it would have to be a really ugly, hostile takeover situation uh, of Giannis saying it's Warriors or nobody else. And would he want to go through all of that? Would the Bucks be cooperative? I mean, these are all very speculative questions, and it's so hard to know how to answer them when we don't even know what the salary cap is going to be within tens of millions of dollars. Um, it's really hard to know what the hell the rules are going to be. But that would be the optimal, the optimal scenario for the Warriors. Obviously, is that is that get... uh, Wiggins turns into Giannis Antetokounmpo? Yeah, and Wiggins plus draft picks. Does um, does Lakeup does Lakeup? I mean, Lakeup probably thinks they can do it, right? Like, he probably is sitting in his office right now, quarantined, just imagining all the ways <laughs> that the Warriors can get Giannis onto their roster, right? I mean, I, look, I, okay, so he, yes, he probably is thinking that way because that's how he thinks. Um, does he have there's, confidence? There's, it's there's going no to cycle. There, there's no cycle. I just, I'm just, we're going to be good yes. forever. Yeah. So, but I would say, okay, so. Um, Anthony Slater, friend and colleague at The Athletic, wrote something about how difficult it would be to do the honest thing. And so, yeah, people should come at it with a little bit of caution, um, just knowing the parameters. But I would also say all the arguments against it happening or what Giannis is going to do, I think we have to dispense with the idea that these guys think the way we think. Like, they don't think how we think. Kawhi won a title and left. Like, I don't, there's, yeah. to me, there is no more an argument that exists that stasis is the most likely outcome, right? Like, I, yeah. I think that's just gone. Yeah, and it's very plausible that Giannis wouldn't want to go through an ugly situation like what Anthony Davis went through. But guess what? Anthony Davis doesn't regret doing it. Anthony, no. Sorry. Um, you know, Anthony Davis uh, was ultimately validated by taking on all that ugliness and taking the reputation hit. He got where he wanted to go. He's a bigger deal now. Um, and he's contending. And so given that example, uh, maybe another superstar would say, Hey, I want that. Now the counter argument as well is what if it takes gutting a roster to do it? What if it takes, and God forbid, I mean, I couldn't see it, the, the, the trading clay Thompson is like a very, very speculative. We're just talking. I mean, I'm not hearing anybody telling me that the Warriors would be willing to do that, but just let's say it takes that, you know, would Giannis want to join the team without clay? I don't know, but I do think we have to assume that these guys see it differently. They see it often as, I want it, I get it, I don't care what happens in between, 
Um, that seems to be more the rule than the exception in the NBA. Yeah, and I mean, I I would also imagine. So I, right now, I am I'm looking at Draymond Green's contract. Um, so his contract extension hasn't even kicked in yet. He is due uh, a a dead amount of salary of over twenty two million dollars at Shoot. least, ascending for the next four years. And uh, this is coming off of a season in which Draymond Green answered the question. What happens if Draymond Green gets a max contract and goes to play for the Sacramento Kings or the Charlotte Hornets, right? And uh, I like Draymond. Yeah. I, I think he's a great player. I think he's so smart. I think he's really underrated by the casual fans. Well, I think I think he what's happening. Good. I think what's happening now too is that defensive players are underrated, but they sometimes have the career arc of a running back. And then what happens yeah. when that? When the wheels fall off, is fans go, well, he was never good in the first place. And it's no, he was good, but the energy expended, the switching one through five. I mean, we see guys like Tony Allen where in the league one day, out of the league the next day. It just, it's it's hard to maintain that energy. And so, yeah, that contract right now is not looking like a good one for the Warriors. We'll see what happens when... Uh, the Calvary returns, but yes, yeah, it's not looking good right now. Or if there has to be a massive renegotiating of the collective bargaining agreement due to uh, these teams not having any money. If if there if there is not a conclusion to the 2020 season with all of the TV money uh, wrapped up in that, or if the 2021 season uh, gets you know just is either is not the money maker that we imagine, or doesn't happen, or whatever, like. These teams are just not going to have the money to pay all the money that they owe for these contracts and and the arenas, you know. And uh, it, w- it would not surprise me if contracts like Draymond Green's just end up, you know, uh, on the chopping block or sold for picks or whatever. Because in that yeah. in that new look NBA, you can't be paying. I mean, thirty three year old Draymond Green is going to be due twenty seven million dollars in cap space from the Warriors. Yeah. Whoo. <laughs> tough, tough, tough yeah. scene, as as uh, the kids might call it. Tough scene. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, he deserves it based on what he did before, though. And then you get into that that trap. That is true. He, you know, yeah. the Reinsdorf, I, I guess, would have pulled the plug, and maybe it would have been good in a very cold, calculated way to not give him that deal. But he deserves it based on all he's done before. So it's it's tricky. It is. So, all right, last thing, and then uh, I will uh, I will let you go, is, you know, there's this really interesting part of the book where, the, the Bob Myers chapter, where you sort of discuss the concept of credit, which Bob Myers, to his, uh, you know, to his credit, I guess, is is uncomfortable taking too much of it. So I'm, I'm just kind of wondering from someone who's who's been around the team for a long time, you know, long enough to remember when they sucked, who do you credit? for that amazing five-year run you know who who is the architect who is the who is the primary creator or or you know how would you dole out the credit basically you know how much goes to curry how much goes to lakeup how much goes to kerr and and so on yeah it's so i mean i think i i my general belief is that the credit is more diffuse that people would want it to be. We've got this urge to try to simplify it and reduce it and say, it was this, you know, it was Michael Jordan. Well, Michael Jordan sat out and they won 55 games. He appeared to have at least at one point of his career, 55 games of help. 
while also being the greatest player who ever played. So obviously there's a lot that goes into it, and what makes it complicated is that one person doing their job well makes it easier for another person to do their job well, which makes it easier for the next person to do their job well. As Ron Adams told me, winning, it opens possibilities for people. And so I think the most essential component to making the Warriors what they became, and it's not popular to say it, was Joe Lacob buying the team. Um, I saw the Warriors before Lacob. I saw the Warriors after Lacob. Lacob, in many ways, is ridiculous. In many ways, he's unlikable. But having an owner who gives a shit and applies pressure from the top and spends to win as a combination, it's a prerequisite for things going well. It just is. You know, Steph Curry was incredibly talented as a shooter. People knew it, but nobody thought he was any kind of all-star before yeah. the team changed over, before the medical practices got more competent, and his ankle was effectively rescued. And so that doesn't mean getting thrown off by the next-door neighbor, the dog, <laughs> Nori. She wants to She wants to play. She's a very aggressive barker. So sorry about that. Okay. Um, so I think that was pretty essential. And maybe Steph Curry is the most essential after that happens. But then Steve Kerr coming along, um, I think, gets them from B to A in a way another coach would not have done. Um, and so <laughs> I, I don't even know. I don't I'm, I'm not providing a satisfactory. I, I want to credit anyone a... but Lacob because I just like <laughs> all all people like Lacob who who name yeah. their dogs after characters from the Fountainhead. Like, I don't know if you could have found a more distasteful way to describe someone than uh, than that. But, I mean, it is true that ownership in sports tends to be a massive, yeah. massive competitive advantage. And like, By the way, it's a bunch of Joe Lacobs. Like, good luck finding a guy who's not like that. Who's not like that, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I mean, so right now, you know, what we're seeing with the Rockets, where... Uh, Tillman, Tillman Fertitta is basically, you know, eggs, like this guy's like, excising like parts Trumpy of the Rockets Lacob. payroll. He's, yeah. He's like Trumpy Lacob. Is... Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's really, it's really not, uh, like owner, like that guy, like Tillman Fertitta is basically going to ruin any chance that the Rockets would have had to, you know, become the new, not the new warriors, but become like the dominant team while LeBron and Anthony Davis were figuring stuff out. Like, it's just, it's just not going to happen. Uh, it's just, it's not going to happen for the Rockets because they won't, they won't spend the money necessary and, uh, it sucks for James Harden. But, uh, I, I think I have to agree with your assessment that Lacob is a huge part of Nobody wants to give him the credit because he's a, he's ridiculous in many ways and unlikable, but it is what it is. I mean, it's important. It's really important. The guy before him was a total hermit absentee, absentee owner. There's absolutely no way any of this winning happens without that change. It's just not going to happen. You know, theoretically, it's probably not going to happen without Steph and without Clay either. Don't get me wrong, but it's absolutely not going to happen without the ownership change. That was doomed to forever bad. And that's, you know, it's, it, it makes a difference. But it all it all builds on itself. You know, one possibility opens up the next possibility, which opens up the next possibility. And so, and then you get situations where there's luck involved, where maybe they wanted to trade staff and it just didn't happen. Um, it is way too convoluted. It's so many human beings working in concert. The one thing I would try to communicate, though, is that there's so much more that goes into winning 
not to sound like Jerry Krause, but organizations are important and you don't see them. You know, we watch the television show, let's say a sitcom Friends, and it's easy to watch that and just think that's the entire TV show are those characters. But then if you were to go as the studio audience, you would see that there's this massive just array of lights and set design and people running around behind there. And, you know, there are writers and there's a there, there are a ton of people involved who make the thing go. And so I think in a way, players are the most essential component, but they're also overvalued as well. Just because they're the ones we see, and we're yeah, going to see them play. Gonna, we're going to overvalue what we see, certainly over what we don't. That is, uh, I think that is certainly true. Well, Ethan, thank you very much for the time. Tell tell everyone uh, where where is the best place for them to order your book. Where where gets you the most money? I think the public affairs website gives me the most money, but. I've been told that if I get five-star reviews on Amazon, it's good. I don't know what happens, but something good happens. Something good in my life. The, the, al- the, algorithm, the algorithm feeds your family uh, if you do yeah, that. The algorithm yeah. feeds my family. So if you can do that, if you like the book, or even if you don't, if you're just some strange person that hated the book but is so nice that you would give a five-star review, I would very or, much— Or if you didn't buy the book but you want to do something nice for a stranger today, go mm-hmm. give Ethan a five-star review on Amazon. It'll, yeah. it'll make the world a better place. Yeah, I accept all manner of uh, of positive fraud. So uh, thank you to uh, thanks for having me. It's a great talk, and thanks to anybody who would read it. Uh, buy my book. It's a quarantine dream, folks. A quarantine dream. It is. You'll read it. You'll read it in one sitting. It's great. Uh, so everyone, everyone, go and do it. Build digital-first customer relationships with Salesforce Digital 360. Connect every marketing, commerce, and digital experience on a single platform. Innovate fast with easy-to-launch sites, campaigns, and apps. That's more relationships, more revenue, more return, and more success. Salesforce Digital 360. Hear from our customers at sfdc.co slash digital 360.